and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 90, and as always, you are joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's episode, we just want to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please remember to tell your family and friends about them, take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories. If you are listening on iTunes, you can always please feel free to leave us a review. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, you can always head over to our website by Google searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians or just going to www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which is a link you can also find in the show notes below or any of our Instagram bios. And like we always say, we don't just coach comp prep competitors, we coach anyone with health and fitness related goals. So without further ado, getting into it, episode 90. Awesome. So we'll get straight into the first question. And this one says, best ways to increase TDEE. So TDEE, Jack, what is TDEE? (laughs) So TDEE is Total Daily Energy Expenditure. Ah, very good. That acronym. So what we're actually going to be basing this off is an awesome post done by Sports Nutrition Australia on their Instagram page. And it was actually posted by Alex Thomas, who is the uh, president of Sports Nutrition Australia. But essentially, they did this awesome infographic on what comprises TDEE. And total daily energy expenditure, it's actually made up of four main components. So the first one, which generally contributes the most to your total daily energy expenditure, will be your RMR, or your resting metabolic rate. So resting metabolic rate, this is generally influenced by your sleep, your training status, your energy availability, your current hormonal profile, hydration, body mass, your body composition, and your nutritional balance. All right, so that's resting metabolic rate. Then you have TEF, which is the thermic effect of food. So thermic effect of food, this is essentially how many calories you actually are going to utilize just breaking down, absorbing, digesting food, metabolizing it. And this is generally- It's the smallest as well, isn't it? Yeah, so thermic effect of food, this does contribute the least to total daily energy expenditure. It's generally on like 10% of your total daily energy expenditure, depending on how much, you know, fiber and stuff you eat, but yeah, it is uh, influenced by your meal composition and also the protein and the fiber content of the foods that you're eating and also your hydration status. Then the second greatest contributor in most people to their total daily energy expenditure is their NEAT, which is their non-exercise activity thermogenesis. So pretty much this is influenced by things like fidgeting, your daily steps, the hours you're awake, your energy availability, and it can actually fluctuate by about 60% depending on the person, which is pretty crazy, right? And then the final contributor is eat, which a lot of us love to do, but it doesn't actually have to do necessarily with eating. It is the exercise activity thermogenesis. So this is influenced by things like if you actually are exercising, right? That's a good place to start. The type of exercise that you're doing, the duration of the exercise, and also the body and the stature when you are exercising or a person when they're exercising. So yeah, those are just the four main components, right? That contribute to total daily energy expenditure. But given that, Jack, how can someone go about trying to increase their total daily energy expenditure? So before examining that, I think it's important to understand why someone might want to increase their TDEE. And obviously, if you're someone who is quite active, you're quite a muscular person and you feel like you should be eating more, 
then it's important to examine why your TDE is quite low. Mm -hmm. And um, I can understand from that perspective, but like increasing TDEE just so you can eat more when you are a small person or maybe you have to just be realistic with, okay, I'm eating, I don't know, 2,500 calories a day. I weigh 50 kilos. That's not a bad amount for that mm -hmm. weight. So you don't try in vain to just increase your TDE when it's already in a decent spot. Like you don't want to be doing 30,000 steps a day just so you get to eat more. Yeah, I, I totally understand where you're coming from there. So yeah, it, really understanding your why. Essentially, why do you want to burn more calories? And yes, I guess there is that it depends on who you are, what your goals are, and how much you're actually consuming right now and how much energy you're actually expending right now too, right? Because if you're not consuming much and you're also not burning much energy either, well then heck, man, take advantage of this, right? And depending on you know which component you want to manipulate. So let's say that you aren't expending much energy right now, but you also recognize that like, hey, like I'm exercising a decent amount, but my NEAT is actually really low. Like I'm going to the gym five days per week, training for an hour and a half, but like I'm only walking 3000 steps per day. Ta-da, look, we just identified where you could potentially increase your non-exercise activity thermogenesis and increase the total amount of calories that you burn by increasing your NEAT. So perhaps getting your daily step count up to eight or 10,000 steps per day, and then you can burn more calories and in, in return, you can eat some more food. Yeah, and basically you can kind of increase any of those aspects we talk about. So eat, NEAT, um, thermic effect of food and resting metabolic rate. Mm -hmm. So go back and think of ways that you can increase those yourself. And the key will just be making it sustainable. So as I said before, you don't just want to exercise eight times a week just so you can increase your exercise activity thermogenesis. Or mm -hmm. you don't want to eat 200 grams of fiber a day just to increase your thermic effect of food. Yeah. So I would say usually if your TDEE is quite low, then one of those areas will be sub submaximal mm. or suboptimal. Like Tierra mentioned with the NEAT, or someone maybe might consume only 10 grams of fiber a day, or someone might have dieted really hard and their RMR might be uh, have decreased. And naturally bringing your body weight up fairly slowly will, will help with that a lot in bringing your RMR back up. Or maybe you just unfortunately don't have a very high RMR. Yeah, and that's a really good point because if you do identify that someone's exercise activity thermogenesis is really high, so let's say they are going to the gym, they are training hard five days per week, right? Their steps are through, through the roof. They're, they're walking over 20,000 steps per day but they're trying to lose weight and they're accurately tracking their calories and they're only on 1500 calories and their weight isn't budging, then in that case, you should start looking in that RMR and that BMR column, right? And say, okay, is something actually going on here? And in that case, you know, it definitely would be worthwhile potentially getting some blood work done, just identifying that everything is within range, you know, I would always recommend making sure and staying on top of your client's sleep schedules and sleep habits, making sure that someone is definitely getting enough sleep, looking at whether or not they might be overtrained, whether they might need a deload, looking at their heart rate variability. There's so many different factors. So hopefully from this, you can identify that, you know, it's so much more complicated than just creating a calorie deficit by just calories in versus calories out, right? There's so many moving and contributing parts that actually can make it a little bit complicated, you know, and it can be a bit of a, you know, kind of need to do some problem solving in most cases. 
Yeah, totally. And there's it's a very multifaceted system. So I think what other recommendations could we give to people to increase it? I think we've we've definitely covered the bases just by examining those four fundamental principles. And I mean, most of the answers are pretty self-explanatory, mm-hmm. I think. Like in order to increase the thermic effect of food, you look at your fiber intake, look at your fruit and vegetables, look at mm-hmm. your whole grains. In order to increase your need, how many steps per day are you doing? Do you have an office job or are you a construction worker? Yeah. With NEAT, okay, that is one thing definitely that I think people just really need to be aware of and not just how many steps they're doing, right? Like, but how much energy are they actually giving to their life? You know, like... This is just a note. This is subjective. Yeah, I guess this is subjective and this is a hypothesis, but... Honestly, like anecdotally, the people who I see who have higher metabolic rates are generally just more energetic people, right? They talk with their hands, they smile, they speak with expression, you know? They speak loudly or at least with a decent tone, right? Like they give energy to life and they're willing to do things, right? Like if someone's like, oh, can someone help me with this? They'll jump up and they'll be like, I will, you know? Or like, you know, they'll do the laundry, they they take out the trash, they'll grab their TV remote. They're willing to do these little things. (laughs) I'm just saying that they don't just put energy into making sure they clock 10,000 steps per day, or they don't just get their training session done, right? Like, because that's only a few hours of the day, right? So if you take that all added up, that might be like three or four hours, however long you're sleeping, hopefully that's at least seven hours, right? So that's 11 hours minus from 24, that's 13 hours. What are you doing for the other 13 hours of the day? How are you putting energy into those 13 hours of the day? So I'm a huge advocate of really expending energy in your life okay and living an energetic life if you do expect to burn a few more calories during the day that's that's all i'm saying you know (laughs) that's the best way to increase your need just be a happy energetic person you know and um yeah those are just little things but it can't hurt it definitely can't (laughs) hurt unless you just talk so much you get real annoying (laughs) but i fully understand obviously that when you are dieting right energy expenditure, it generally tends to go down. Neat is one of the first things to go because your body is trying to conserve energy. But I would definitely advocate that people are aware of how much energy that they were usually putting into little life aspects and then how that actually might've changed once they went into a caloric deficit, you know? Just being aware of these little things like, hey, I'm not actually talking with my hands anymore, you know, or I'm actually sitting down between my sets of the gym. I'm not standing up anymore, or I'm not even inclined to actually start conversations anymore. Like I'm not speaking as loud on the phone or like the trash is like getting out of hand because I haven't taken it out for five days kind of thing. Be aware of these little things. And if you stay on top of them, right? Almost try to trick yourself like, hey, if I do this, I might burn an extra calorie, you know, just be aware of these things and how you expend your energy. So I don't think that's a good way of looking at it. Not, not, I'm not going to the extremes, man, but I'm saying still be aware unless you do want to end up eating a very, very small amount of food because your body is conserving so much energy. So it's, it is very important to be aware of these things, but you know, other than neat Jack, what about eat? So actually performing exercise. Yeah. So that's definitely an important topic. And the the big part of this as well is just obviously being in a deficit will lower your energy and availability which will make you just less enthusiastic less 
inclined to do more things, your neat will go down. Your If you don't keep a strong hand on it, your eat will go down as well. The only thing that might even go up is your thermic effect of food because mm-hmm. you're eating more fibrous foods. Mm-hmm. But in terms of eat, we can't ignore the importance of just training harder in general and how that correlates to energy expenditure. So instead of just going through the motions, then we really need to aim to get stronger and get stronger for multiple reps as well. Mm-hmm. So rather than yeah doing an RPE five on a squat and not improving versus ensuring that you are trying to progress each session and do it an adequate intensity and sometimes uh, interesting Alex actually talked about this recently as well but actually testing your uh, your AMRAP or your eight re- eight rep max or your ten rep max. Because like some people say, oh, test your 1RM, but that, I mean, that's good if you work off a percentage based, but people don't do a 1RM for squats mm-hmm. regularly when they train, they do an eight reps or and they do 10 then, reps. There's a lot of issues with percentage based, especially mm. depending on your muscle fibers. Like your 70% 1RM is very different to my 70% 1RM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Type one versus type two. But that, I think that's an important point we, we should make and mm-hmm. finish on for this one. Yeah, I definitely think doing AMRAP testing is a heck of a lot more applicable, especially to bodybuilders, right? Yeah, he- of course, if you're a power lifter, you know, that's very specific to your sport, do one RMs. But as a bodybuilder, you know, yeah, you're trying to get strong for reps. And again, speaking anecdotally with a lot of the clients that I work with, generally the clients that have the highest energy availability and can eat the most food, they are strong for reps so they can actually lift more weight and perform that for more reps. And I'm a huge advocate of that. You know, I think that if you can get stronger and you can lift a weight for more reps, one, that's going to be greater stimulus on your muscles. You're more likely to grow. And also per rep, you're definitely going to be expending more energy. Sure. It might not be a substantial amount for just one rep, but these things contribute, man. Okay. So yeah, if I think that if you majorly want to change your body composition in the long term, you want to get your metabolic rate up, then yes, you do need to get strong for reps and you need to uh, put energy into your life. And there's just a really big difference, you know, between going to the gym, right, and training hard and then going to the gym and sitting on a leg extension and just going on Instagram, you know. And that's again, that's the thing why you need to dive in. Because sometimes someone will tell you like, you know, I go to the gym five days per week. I'm in there for 90 minutes, but like, I'm just not seeing results. Right. And you might take that at face value and be like, damn, this person's working out not for 90 minutes, five times a week. Like there must be something wrong, but then you actually see them train and you're like, man, come on, you could go heavier or like you're in the gym for 90 minutes, but you're only working out for 20 kind of thing. Right? So there's a big difference between just being in a gym and actually being in a gym and training hard. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I think it's important to note that this is all most that final bit was subjective because Mm -hmm. from what we've seen so far, the, the research tends to say that Resistance training doesn't burn much energy compared Mm -hmm. to other forms of exercise. Yeah, of course. You know, this is just a discussion. But I mean, no, what we can say, though, is training hard is definitely going to burn. And I guess what we did say is training hard will burn more energy than not training hard. Mm -hmm. We didn't compare it to other forms of exercise. So before we confuse ourselves and you guys more, I think we'll move on to the next question. 
Okay, awesome. So guys, moving on to another topic. So this one is about warm-up sets. So it's, a, it's pretty much a two-part question. It says, how do you use warm-up sets? And also, do you track your warm-up sets and do they also contribute to your working sets? The way I interpret that is like, would you differentiate between your working sets and your warm-up sets? How do you divide the two or should you just clump them all together, right? And just mm. count total sets. Yeah, so good question. And yeah, we'll, we'll dive into this one. So in terms of a warm-up set, the, the way Tia and I see it is basically warming your body temperature up and preparing your nervous system for the movements you're about to complete and, and it be able to do all of that safely as well. Mm-hmm. So the way I personally do warm-up sets I think it's important to note that it is different for everyone, especially people who have had injuries before and they might be given certain exercises from their, their allied health professionals. And then there are some sort of less evidence-based things that even I do to, to prepare myself for a session. So for example, like I do, like for a, before a leg session, my warm up usually takes 20 minutes. I, to, from like when I start warming up to when I do my first working set of squats or RDLs, so I basically start off with some trigger balling, like trigger ball my lower back and my hips, and then I foam roll my legs. And there's, there's very little evidence to support that that actually helps, mm-hmm. but it feels good. It feels like I'm um, warming up those areas, especially my lower back. It relieves any tension I have there, again, psychologically and psychologically as well and it it feels like i'm more prepared for that rather than just going straight into a warm-up for an rdl Mm -hmm. and i think that's a really good point to make that uh, again that's that's not necessarily evidence-based there's not a meta-analysis saying that you will perform better in a squat if you do trigger ball and foam roll right before your your squats right Mm -hmm. but it works for you right it works for you it won't work for everyone it works for you and it might work for other people too yeah definitely and so after that, I usually do some more stuff specific to me. So again, I've had issues with not firing my glute medius um, appropriately or as much as it should. So I ensure to basically warm up my glute medius, my adductors as well. So I do like some Copenhagen planks. And again, that's also psychological. Like those muscles are firing. They feel warm. Uh, I get a pump in those areas and I feel very ready. Like I'm not in any doubt that something is, isn't going to be ready for mm-hmm. a squat. Uh, and then probably the bit where, which I think everyone should be doing um, before just going straight into a working set is is doing some warm-ups with the actual weight. Mm-hmm. And again, this will obviously de- depend on how much you lift and will be proportional to that. So let's say if I'm doing a like 170 RDL, I'll just start with, And I'm not saying this is how you should do it. This is how I do it. Bear in mind that I'm already warm from all that other stuff I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But I do like 60 kilos, 100 kilos, probably 120, 140, 170. And just how many reps for each one of those? So 60, I'll probably do eight. 100, I'll probably do two or three. 120, probably two or three. Mm -hmm. 140, two or three. And then 170, I'll do one. Just as a little like a... um, a more of like a neural sort of mm. test and then because like you, yeah like there is a big jump even from like 140 to 170 yeah like obviously there is that's 30 kilos and you want to ensure that you know what you're lifting before mm-hmm. you actually do it um otherwise you get a bit of a shock 
especially after a deload. Like that'll be me this Friday when I, I haven't de- uh, RDL'd that much in two weeks now. So yeah. Yeah, but that's how I do it. And Tierra doesn't do quite as much fancy stuff. No, no, I don't. But that's the thing again, you know, it's individual for everyone. And the main thing is like when we, when you talk about warming up, it literally means warming up your body. Okay. So increasing your body temperature and, uh, you know, expending more energy and getting your blood pressure up, getting more blood and oxygen and nutrients to those working muscles. And yes, activating your nervous system so it gets used to that load, right? You wouldn't just walk into the gym and just hop on a leg press with 200 kilograms on it, right? Like you literally need to work your way up to that. So yeah, that's the thing with warm-up sets, but it's it's really hard to describe, right? Like mm. what you just said, you're like, I do 60, then 100, then 140, then 70 or 170. Uh, like it's hard to explain that to someone because it's going to be so individual, right? And it's, again, it's, there's no perfect way to do it. It's kind of like what you feel like, and it's always going to be based off, obviously the very first movement you're performing that day, which is generally a compound movement and your top weight for that movement. So first off warming up, I know that you and I walk to the gym in the sun, right? It's like 30 degrees most days and it's only a 10 minute walk. Personally, I find that helps me get very warm, Uh, but yeah, no joke, I'm definitely not cold. But for other people, let's say someone lived in a cold climate, right? And they drive to the gym, right? Then walk on the treadmill for 10 or 15 minutes, right? Like literally get your heart rate up a little bit, get your body warmer. You don't wanna be going into the gym and start lifting weights all cold and stiff. Like you need to get your core body temperature up. You need to get your blood pressure up. You need to not like be profusely sweating, but yeah, warm yourself up, man. Mm. Uh, I think some people have to remember that where it's quite an intense form of activity. You're literally going, you're putting something on your back or you're lift, pushing something up that is, could crush you if you drop it or it, you're working close to failure. Like imagine if you trans, translated that to a real life scenario, mm-hmm. like if a tree branch fell on somebody and you had to lift it up, that's sort of what you're doing in the gym. And like you're doing that repetitively for mm-hmm. multiple sets, for multiple days of the week and you're expecting not to get injured. So that's where the importance of warming up and recovery is, is comes into play. Yeah, similar to how if you were at your desk job, right? You wouldn't just stand up. And if there was a squat rack right next to you, you wouldn't just stand up, walk over to the squat rack and then just start squatting your 10 RM, right? Similar to how if you drive to the gym in your car, you don't just get out of your car and just go st- straight to the squat rack and start lifting your working weights. Mm. Like get yourself prepared, man. But yeah, for example, if I'm doing like an OHP, right? And right now I'm lifting 40 kilograms from my OHP, it's pretty similar. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> I've been working up to that one. But like, like I'll sit down obviously and I'll start with just the bar, which is just 20 kilograms. And I might do like, you know, six to eight reps with just the bar. Then I might just put a five on each side, do a few reps with 30. I'll go up to 35, 37.5. As the weights go up, I usually only do one or two reps. And then just like you with your RDLs, I like to get myself, my central nervous system, like used to lifting that weight. So I'll usually do one rep with my working weight, literally just to get a feel for it. Right. And then I'll actually move into my working sets. So it's hard to describe, you know, it's, it's, but I think everyone's going to find their groove. They're going to find out what works for them. 
Uh, but pretty much, yeah, you just need to prepare for that. And what do you, what about you? Like if you're doing a leg day, do you then find that you're pretty, after you do all your working sets for your first exercise, you're pretty warm, you're pretty ready. And then moving into the following exercises, you don't necessarily have to do nearly as many warm up sets. And sometimes you can just work, move into your working weight. Yeah. Most, most exercises, uh, on, on leg day, I, I will only do that one rep or to like just the movement pattern. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I'm already warm. I'm not concerned about warming up. It's more the movement pattern, mm-hmm. especially like something like a leg press where there's a lot of weight and I want to at least do a couple reps before I yeah. load up. Yeah. Like what am I in for here? <laughs> yeah. Or same with like a, yeah, staggered RDL after squat. So I'll, I'll at least do one to, cause like going from a squat to a RDL, they're completely different movement patterns. So you, I just do it to kind of synchronize in that mm-hmm. aspect. And I'm not even sure if that's correct in saying that, but again, it works for me. Yeah. Um, and then, so I guess the final question is how do you differentiate between warm up sets and working sets and are they different and would your warm up sets contribute to your total volume? So I don't think warm up, I don't think you warm up set should contribute to your total volume. Personally, I don't think you need to track them. I don't track them. Um, And it would just be another variable to track, but I don't think it would really be that handy or necessary. Yeah. It's Uh, like if you have a logbook, you don't need to track your warm-up sets and be like, am I improving in my warm-up sets? Yeah, that shouldn't be the goal. (laughs) (laughs) But... Yeah, I think that's that's probably the best mm-hmm. best example. And but how do you differentiate between them? Well, a working set is one that you've already established mm-hmm. and that you are aiming to progress or improve. And it should be the intensity is very different to a warm up set. Mm-hmm. So it should be whether somebody does. There's different ways to do working sets. Like some people do a, a top set, back off set. Personally, we both do keep the weight consistent and then try and match reps or base it off intensity for those sets. So let's say if you're working at a nine out of 10 intensity for bench, chuck a hundred kilos on, you might do nine, eight, seven reps, Mm -hmm. for example. Um, Or just do, if you can get like three sets of eight across, then, then yeah, it just depends. And there's, yeah, it's kind of hard to specify. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess. Your working sets, which ones are you really working in, mm. right? Which ones are you actually really training hard in? And uh, yeah. Like, okay, yeah. If you, if you can't <laughs> differentiate between a working set and a warm-up set, then something is off. <laughs> are you either training like too easy or are you training too hard? That's actually a good point. Yeah, <laughs> but either way, something is definitely off. <laughs> We're going to have to do a poll for that one. <laughs> yeah, but I um, hope that makes sense. Um yeah, the, again, there's no real right and wrong. Mm-hmm. In, well, that, actually, there is, but there's it's quite a gray area in terms of what works for you, what weight are you lifting. I don't think you need to track it. And No, we'll and move. I guess just interpreting it like if a coach writes you a plan, right, and they say, I want you to do three by eight to 12 with a certain weight for this exercise, don't incorporate warm-up sets into that three by oh, eight yeah. to 12. <laughs> yeah, like that. Yeah, otherwise, you'll be do- not be doing enough volume or- mm-hmm. Yeah, but let's cool. move on. All right, let's move on to another one. So this last question says, do you feel like natural bodybuilding is a means to an end? Yeah, so Tira and I, we're kind of really struggling to decipher this question. <laughs> and But that's why we chose it, because it, it'll, it'll be a discussion point. Mm-hmm. And I'm not really sure which way to take it, because like 
means to an end could it could mean so many different things Mm -hmm. but like how i'm kind of deciphering it is that like what is the purpose of natural bodybuilding like Mm -hmm. what does it achieve it doesn't really it's not like i don't know being an engineer where you build a bridge (laughs) or it's it's like yeah it doesn't doesn't mean anything Mm -hmm. um or that could be someone's point of view the other thing which i've been hearing more lately is that like natural bodybuilding is just like a starvation contest like by the time people get on stage they have no sex drive they're crazy about food they don't really have much muscle and they end up kind of just looking a bit skinny and competitors who aren't as developed um, and maybe are competing too early but I do think that the professional natural bodybuilders are pretty incredible and yeah it's just a it'll be an interesting discussion point for the next few minutes I guess. Yeah, so I'm actually going to read out a definition for a means to an end. So this is a phrase, and it says, if you say that something is a means to an end, you mean that it helps you achieve what you want, although it might not be enjoyable or important itself. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I guess if Tiara and I were to apply that to our business, we're not saying this is true in the slightest, but it would mean that we only do natural bodybuilding to get clients for our mm-hmm. business. But obviously that's not true because we started bodybuilding before even thinking about dietetics mm-hmm. or at least I did. So, or it's, or even if it's individual, which it, it's a combination of things, but it's like, Oh, you're only doing this to look a certain way, but you mm. don't enjoy it. And it's not important in the slightest. Yeah. And I, I don't think that the question asker meant that. I think it was just a phrase that he or she used so can we just say one big no (laughs) yeah we can we can say one big no so it is not a means to an end (laughs) yeah it's not but i i know where you're coming from like some people i'm sure they do just go to the gym to to look a certain way they Mm -hmm. might not enjoy it and i if you're coming through the route of why is isn't is natural bodybuilding a bit pointless because most people just look pretty crappy Mm -hmm. um like they look they look small in a small t-shirt Um, when they're dieting and they feel pretty average most of the time when Mm -hmm. they're dieting that's that's why you got to love the sport to do it and I'm sure not I don't understand people who want to do like 40 marathons in 40 days like I couldn't imagine anything worse to do for me so that'd be freaking tough man but then they look at us and they're like you know why would you be so disciplined with your food and you know so disciplined with your training and everything has to be regimented just to achieve this one outcome on this one day like they don't understand us and we don't understand them right Mm. but yeah I know the I know the list the question asked is going to listen to this so I'll be interested if they want to give us a message back and actually tell us what they were intending by the question. Yeah. And like we're not by any we're not by any means taking it the wrong way. We're just interested now yeah. to know what you meant. But I guess this is just a nice point to just mention that guys that bodybuilding isn't for everyone. Okay? Mm. Bodybuilding most certainly isn't for everyone, but at the same time nothing is for everyone, right? So like People do certain things or people look at me and they're like, man, I can't believe the way that you live your lifestyle. Like I could never do that. And I'm, I'm a nice person. So I don't necessarily say this back to them, but if I was to examine their lifestyle, I'd be like, man, that just does not appeal to me in the slightest. Like I freaking love what I do and I'm proud of what I do. And I hope everyone else is proud of what they do too. Right. But bodybuilding is certainly not for everyone. And 
you can't necessarily complain about committing to a choice, okay? Like if you are a bodybuilder and you wanna do this, right? Remember that it is a choice that you've committed to. You've committed to it, all right? No one else ever makes someone else bodybuild. I've never (laughs) heard of a situation like that. That's just, that is ridiculous, okay? And yes, it's certainly going to be tough, but if you find yourself that you are just constantly complaining about, you know, tracking your food, having to go to the gym, you know, like having to be disciplined in these different aspects, perhaps not being the wildest party animal on the planet. Okay. I think that you need to sit down with yourself and really question, why am I doing this? You really need to understand your why, because man, it's like going to university, right? And yeah, university's tough, but you choose what degree you want to do, okay? Mm-hmm. And if you're complaining about every single lecture you have to go to, every single prac, every single test you have to do, every single assignment, right? Like, it's just like, you can study something else, right? You know, yeah. like at the end of the day, you're actually paying for this degree. Similar how we actually pay to be bodybuilders. Unless we compete professionally one day, this is a very expensive <laughs> hobby, man. All right. So yeah, just please understand that this is a choice, right? And you can't complain about a choice that you commit to. So yeah, bodybuilding isn't for everyone. I know it's definitely for us. I know it's definitely not a means to an end. Yeah. <laughs> If anything, it's the opposite mm-hmm. because we're paying a crap load to be able to bodybuild and yeah. yeah. But um I love our lifestyle so much. I can't imagine living in any other way, you know? Like this aligns so much with my values, you know, it makes me feel so good. Like, if anything, because I would consider myself a little bit introverted, but it actually allows me to be really? more social and extroverted because I feel like I'm a, I'm able to have time to myself, but I'm also able to have that perfect combination of interacting with other people too. You know, going to a very uh, like friendly environment, going to the gym every day of the, well, most days of the week, you know, interacting with people there, also interacting with my clients every day. It's this wonderful balance. I, I love it so much. And being able to apply all the wonderful things we learned at university, you know, with nutrition and exercise to our lifestyle so we can literally expand the quality of our life. It's amazing, man. I freaking love this. What did you get in the extroversion test? Uh, I can't even remember. When we did that thing in counseling or psychology? Yeah. I can't even remember. Mm. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't think you're an introvert. I, think. I don't think I'm an extrovert either. Well, the thing is, I think the definition for introvert and extrovert is where do you get your energy from? So if you're an extrovert, you get your energy from other people. If you're an introvert, you get your energy from yourself. I'm saying I'm a bit in the middle. I know mm. I definitely get a lot of energy from myself, but I also do enjoy being around other do people. Do dogs count as other people? Yes, Sam da- definitely counts <laughs> as a person. <laughs> well, that's relieving. <laughs> and yeah, that's. I hope that wraps up this question. And yeah, I'm interested to see what other people think of it as well. Mm-hmm. But without further ado, we'll finish on one thing that we learned this week. So I'll let Tierra kickstart this off. Yeah, so this past week, I actually watched this really good documentary. It's actually called The Weight of Gold. It's narrated by Michael Phelps, you know, the famous Olympic swimmer. And a fantastic documentary if anyone is interested, you know, in athletes competing at the Olympics and what it actually, what actually goes on behind the scenes to actually be an Olympic athlete. It's very eye-opening. And what's the most eye-opening about it is actually 
the mental health issues that actually go on with athletes who do compete at such a high level, you know, because they are just hyper-focused, you know, from such a young age and building up to, you know, compete at the Olympics on this one goal, on their one sport. They dedicate every single day, every single thing in their life to competing at this one event, right? And it's this, there's just this utopia of emotions once they're actually at the Olympics but then after they compete, right? Like one, there's a four year gap until the next Olympics, if they actually make the team again, right? But they just, they feel so incredibly lost, right? It's this, it's this massive sense of just sensational emotions where you're so hyped up and excited, but then you just come totally down, right? Like you just experience major blues. And I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that in a lot of different aspects of life, right? You really hype yourself up for this one event. Like let's say it is a bodybuilding show. Let's say that it is a wedding. Let's say that it's a pregnancy, right? Graduating. A graduation. Yeah, literally it's, it's whatever. It's the, that post event blues, right? Where you actually have to come back down and, um, I don't know, is it like your serotonin or your dopamine levels, they plummet or something, but anyway, I think it's, well, personally for me, it's probably more that you look forward to something a lot and then you, mm-hmm. you haven't really thought about afterwards. Yeah. Like you're sending everything on the feeling of joy of finishing something. For me, it was definitely uni and like way ago high school mm-hmm. because like I I was definitely keen to get out of high school and I'm I was glad I finished up four and a half years of uni mm-hmm. but then you kind of you're a bit lost after that point yeah. same with competing as well yeah it's like what now right but this whole documentary it's about Olympic athletes competing at that level and then going like okay what's next right especially if if they compete in their early 20s and then maybe their career is over what do they do right so this whole documentary is really about how there's actually not a lot of support for athletes in terms of mental health which is very unfortunate you know because if an athlete has a broken ankle right or an athlete has an injury they're going to have the top physios the top massage therapists right the top sports dietitians the top coaches helping them out to get them better to recover from that injury but if someone's like hey man i'm just not in the best headspace right now people don't take it seriously you know and they'll be like oh, you know, just uh, just Google therapists in your area. Just have a chat with someone, you know, or just just go for a walk, get some sunshine. Like, just cheer oh, up. Yeah, just cheer up, man. Like, it just, you know, like, you you look better when you smile. Like, people don't take mental health seriously enough, right? And there's actually a lot of Olympic athletes who have actually committed suicide. It's tragic, you know, it's, it's absolutely tragic. So, Well, yeah. it applies to everyone, not just... Yeah. And the dismissal that people have for people mm-hmm. with anxiety or depression or any other yeah. mental health issue. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It needs, it needs to come to light. You know, it needs to be treated as a serious issue because it's incredibly serious. But, yeah, I really recommend that everyone checks out this documentary. It's just called The Weight of Gold. And it just really brings to light that, you know, like, what is it actually like to be an Olympic athlete? It's not just sunshine and rainbows, you know it's a really freaking tough time and they are probably do not nearly get as much support like not just you know mentally and physically but financially too as what you might expect so um yeah check out that documentary very very eye-opening and um yeah anyway jack what did you learn this week so i listened to a podcast about genetics with menno henselman and he was talking about like things that we don't really think about that much 
when it comes to genetics and success in sport. And this is all very like, it's the big thing of like correlation versus causation. It's just, it's just trends that they've identified. And like even things like how big is your hand? Like you don't see uh, a very successful bench presser with tiny little girl hands. Mm -hmm. You, you, they are big meaty hands with probably hair on the back and stuff like that. (laughs) A lot of calluses. (laughs) Yeah. Like you just don't see someone, uh, a very, very, like someone who can bench press 200 kilos with small hands Mm -hmm. just doesn't happen. Same with basketball players and the size of their hands. Yeah. And like the same was actually made for something like the ring finger length. If your if your ring finger is bigger than your pointer finger, then you'll have like more success for being a, a sumo wrestler or something. <laughs> and guess what, guys? <laughs> Both Jack and I's ring fingers are actually longer than our pointer fingers. So I bet you guys look at your hands right now. Is your ring finger longer than your pointer finger? And hell, if it is. Who knows? <laughs> we might be speaking to the next sumo wrestler. Yeah, if bodybuilding doesn't work out, man. You know, yeah. I'll put on one of those diapers. I'll eat the world. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I think I'd struggle with getting that fat. <laughs> anyway, that was enlightening. And if you want to listen to that episode, it was the most recent Revive Stronger episode. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we'll wrap things up. As always, thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, please remember to repost it to your social media. Tag myself, tag Tierra, tag TBD. And leave a review on iTunes if you're feeling nice. And we'll catch you guys next week. Bye, guys.